Please stand for the reading of God's word. Just want to remind everybody that we have blue Bibles in the back of the seats for anybody who doesn't have one. And um, we also encourage you to take those home if you need one. The page number on the blue Bibles is 522, and we're going to be reading Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Thus says God's word. Amen. Thank you, Danae. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the time that we have to be together as the body of Christ. And Lord, I just ask that right now you would speak to us through this word. And as we have sung all morning long, that our hearts would would desire to see you as you really are, not as we imagine you to be, but, but as your word reveals you, that we would see you powerful, glorious, worthy. And Lord, I, I pray that you would assist me in the preaching of your word Uh, As I ask every week, Lord, that you would give me both clarity and accuracy as I speak to your people, Lord. Let me be uh, completely lost and hidden in you, Lord God, as you shine through your own word. And Father, we thank you for that. We just give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Danae, for reading that. Um, That's a real interesting passage in the book of Romans. Uh, if you're familiar or even if you're unfamiliar with the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters in that book represent one of the Bible's most thorough representations or explanations of the gospel, the, the message of Jesus. Not only what it is, but how it works, why, how it functions, how it saves men and women, boys and girls. And, and so there's this this thorough um, explanation of the gospel of God's salvation given to humankind through Jesus that shows how all people, both Jew and Gentile, are separated from God because of their sin. And, and, and as that, as, as, as universally sinful, we're all left, the Bible says in, the, in Romans, without excuse. And the book explains how that because of our continual sinning, because of our rebellious posture towards God, that God's judgment and His wrath is being revealed in judgment against all people because of this fallen condition. But it also details how God, in spite of that, revealed His goodness towards the entire human race through the death of Jesus, and how now God is imputing His righteousness, He's giving His righteousness, a righteousness we didn't earn, by faith to all who believe. Paul goes on in the book to tell how grace is enough, not just for the original sin that we inherited from Adam, our original sin condition, but it also grace is enough for the sinful actions and the sinful attitudes that we fight with every day. Or at least I do. I guess you guys probably don't, but I do. So grace has even triumphed over the righteous accusations from the law of God. So he goes on 
Further even, when you get into like chapter 8 and speaks of how God has engineered a new kind of life for us all by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he states at the end, that great passage at the end, he states that nothing now can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. He goes on to tell of God's current and future redemptive plans for the Jews and the Gentiles before spending the last five chapters giving practical gospel-centered instructions that touch many practical daily concerns of the Roman believers. But tucked in between the theology, the rich theology of those first 11 chapters and those last five chapters of practical wisdom, we find this stunning doxology, that, that, uh, which is a text of worship, which, uh, which is tucked right there in between. And this is what Danae read to us as our text. After detailing all of these amazing truths, I don't want you to lose this. After detailing all of these amazing truths about what God has done through and by Jesus, Paul steps back from his writing And he is absolutely and reverently compelled to offer praise to God. He sits there and he looks at what he's written in 11 chapters and and what it means and the implications for fallen humanity. And he goes, whoa, have you ever been reading the scriptures or, or been in a moment of prayer or devotion and you just step back in awe and reverent worship about what God has revealed about himself? And so Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words so that they would last eternally as Scripture, is just amazed at what he just wrote. And this is how he responds in worship. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. And he cries that out and he describes the mind of God. That's what the words wisdom and knowledge obviously mean. He's describing the mind of God and he describes it as riches. He describes it as wealth. He stands amazed at the depth of that wealth. And this is an important, a very important reminder to us all. One on which we often all stumble about what real wisdom in this life really is. No matter how much wealth of wisdom that you think resides in the world of academia, in the world of science, in the world of philosophy or entertainment or technology or religion, the wisdom of God makes all of that so-called wisdom look like utter poverty. If human wisdom can be measured in its totality by the height of Mount Everest... God's wisdom reaches to the very edges of the universe. Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, or your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The wisdom This wisdom is revealed in the redemption of of humankind that Paul has just described in these first 11 chapters of of, uh, Romans. His response to God's salvation is this humbled, awestruck worship. Now think about that. He considers what God has done in Jesus. He he has laid it out for the people of Rome, the, the new believers of Rome, and he's humbled, he's awestruck. All he can do is worship. And And my question to us today is when we hear the same message of the gospel, 
Even if we hear it week in and week out on podcasts and books and from this pulpit, if we hear it, why is our response so often indifference and familiarity? Why are we unmoved by the thing that made the greatest theologian outside of Jesus of all time stand back in wonder and and awe and, and worship? Paul says, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Listen, none of us are capable of the thoughts of Jesus. His decisions are unsearchable. And our solutions to our problems are laughably inferior to what Jesus has done for us through the cross. God's ways, the Bible says, are inscrutable. And what this means is as valuable as information is, as valuable as wisdom and learning are. To say that God's ways are inscrutable means that Google, the World Wide Web, Texas Tech, are of no help to you in understanding God. Inscrutable literally means past finding out. You're not going to be, you've never once said accurately, "Oh, oh, I know what God's up to here. You've never done it. Because God is moving in, in ways, the old William Cowper line from the hymn, God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. And every one of us who's followed Jesus for a nanosecond has figured that out. It's amazing what God will accomplish through means that we never would have chosen for ourselves. Without the help of God's word, Without the help and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we never would have seen what He's done in human history. Or we never would have had any clue or known where He's going with it. But Paul slam dunks this point, And he quotes Isaiah 40, 13, and he says, God has no counselor. No one has ever said to God, um, well, let me rephrase that, because I'm sure plenty of people have said it. God has never needed anyone to say to him, you know, God, what I think you should do here is no one. He has no counselor. And then he goes on and quotes another Old Testament passage from Job 41.11. He says, or who has given God a gift, who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid. He's doing this to show God's self-existence. People talk about when they succeed in any arena of life, sports, politics, whatever, they talk about standing on the shoulders of giants. And I'm sure many of you here feel like in the areas of your life where you've succeeded, you can point back to people who helped you, mentored you, walked with you, and you say, because of them, I'm here. But see, God does not do that. God has nobody's shoulders to stand on. God owes no credit to anyone for anything he is or anything he has. All he has, he has because of himself. And all he gives, he gives because of mercy and never because of debt. He doesn't know you jack squat, if I'm allowed to say that. There's a small crowd today, so I'm going to get away with a lot today. Just hold on, you won't believe what I'm going to say in a minute. Paul concludes this doxology with a summation of who God essentially is. If you want to have a real quick, if you ever forget, and we all forget sometimes, who God is, and you need to have a a summation of the character of God that is all-inclusive, here it is. For from Him and through Him 
And to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. It's a word that we say a lot in church. Most of you have said it all your life, and many of you may have no idea what you're saying. When you say amen, the reason we say that at the end of a prayer is it's not some kind of archaic period at the end of a sentence. Amen literally means so be it. It means I agree with that. It means this is true. And so Paul, having his heart moved to worship in these just three or four verses, says to God, be glory. Let, let God be glorified forever. Let it never end. Amen. Let it be. It's true. I agree. So today, we're going to wrap up our series on the five solas. These are one more explanation, the five doctrinal affirmations of the church. In the past several weeks, we've discussed Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone. Last week, Pastor Dave did an incredible job talking about faith alone. And today, we're going to focus on the last great guiding truth defined by the five solas, and that is soli deo gloria. And this is Latin for to God alone be the glory. And this became a battle cry of the Reformation, Because the Catholic Church had elevated the church's human agents, popes, bishops, bishops, etc., and required members to contribute to their salvation by penance, by good works, by confession. But no human is worthy, listen to this carefully, no human being anywhere ever is worthy of honor for dispensing the gift of grace on people. Nobody. Not me, not a priest, not a pastor, not a pope, not nobody, not you, not you, not your mama, nobody dispenses grace. Only God does that. If we believe in some way, I want you to think about this. Some of you have never taken this thought to its logical conclusion. But if we believe that we helped God save us by being good, he was somehow obligated to save us because we were a pretty darn nice guy, then we deserve a tiny little corner, a tiny little portion of his throne to occupy, if we believe that. Because he did most of the work. We'll all admit he did the heavy lifting, but we did a little bit. So we did, Can we just sit just right there on the corner, God, of your throne? But as you think about the absurdity of that, I want to prove to you that the book of Revelation paints a much different Picture. I didn't tell, I never do, I didn't tell Rochelle any of the songs that I'd like to sing today, and she actually referenced this and several other things I'm going to say in my message. But listen to this picture that Revelation paints of, of this moment in, in uh, uh, future history. Uh, actually, I think there's part of the present history where, where God's glory is revealed in heaven. And listen to what, heaven, what it says is going on in heaven. It says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the cross, these living creatures are heavenly beings that live in heaven with the sole purpose of worshiping God all the time. No breaks. Nothing. Just they worship God all the time. And so when they give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, which are human, uh, redeemed humans in heaven, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him. 
who lives forever. And they cast their crowns before his throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Now let me break that down for you. The consuming passion of both heavenly beings, angels and whatnot, and redeemed humans around the throne of God, their consuming passion is His glory, never their own. It's important. See, I grew up in a church where we talked about heaven a lot, but usually heaven was a place I went where God could thank me for being such a good guy. Here's the keys to your mansion. You know, it's on, you know, Blessing Lane on these gold streets and everything. And the picture that the Bible paints of heaven is is completely different. I'm not going to say, well, it's about time my heavenly Ed McMahon delivered the check. None of y'all remember Ed McMahon. I'm sorry. He used to have TV commercials where he'd give sweepstakes and give away millions of dollars. But But that's not, that is not what heaven is. Heaven is a moment... The being in the presence of God, unfiltered presence of God, where our, our consuming passion is no longer our glory, our advancement, our promotion, but His glory. His worship. The, the acknowledgement and, and the reaction to, the response to His worthiness. Notice that in heaven, God, who cannot cease to be generous, gives crowns to these 24 elders. He, they, they have them because He gave them to them. But when they receive those crowns, they cannot think of a better purpose for those crowns than to cast them at the feet of Jesus. That's amazing. No one in heaven is slipping that gold on their head and saying, well, it's about time, God. It was hard down there. Thanks a lot. No one's doing that. When they see him revealed, unfiltered, they say, I don't deserve that. You are worthy of all glory, all honor, all praise. So before we analyze the meaning of the final verse of Paul's doxology in Romans 11, let's better define a few key terms that we find in these passages. Worthy, worship, and glory. Worthy and worship share a common root word, worth. That's the common root word to both worthy and worship. And we understand that word. No one, no one here is struggling for the meaning of worth. We all understand it. Primarily from economics. Worth is comparative value. This is worth more than that. One of my hobbies, some of you know this, that I really enjoy is collecting old vinyl records. I love it. I've been doing it uh, a little over a year now. And uh, most of my records are from the 50s through the 70s. And I have, at this point, just because I got really obsessed with it for a little while, I have about 450 records. And some of them, you know, I'm proud to say, brag a little bit, some of them are worth a little bit of money. They were good finds, and they're worth a little bit of money. And I really enjoy this. I really enjoyed building my collection. When, When anybody cares, I enjoy showing it off. I like doing that. I love listening to music. Mine are more to use than collect, because I really like listening to the music from that time period. But I want to make, go on record, make sure we're recording this, I want to make a deal with you today, okay? The absolute deal. Everybody's hearing it to verify that I said this. If any of you in the building right now have a sealed copy, low-numbered copy 
of the Beatles' White Album from 1968, I will trade all 450 of my records right now, right here in front of everybody, to you for that one record. Now, why on earth, somebody who enjoys collecting records, would I trade you, you know, 450 records for one record? Why would I do that? But you know why I would do it. I, I, I wouldn't even ask you questions. And the reason I would do it is because my 450 records are not worth a fraction of what that one record is. The most expensive copy of that one single record that was ever sold was $790,000. I think I could part with my records for eight hundred dollars I think. Try me. So if you have it, come see me after church. All of mine combined aren't worth a fraction of that. And this, and that silly little illustration, is exactly what it means that God is worthy. He's worth it. What I'm trying to communicate to you, church, is that the worth of God is far beyond anything or everything we could ever trade for him. Jesus said it. He said, what does it profit a man to gain this whole world, even a mint copy of the White Album, and lose his soul? He's worth everything we could ever trade for him. Everything else in creation, even the White Album, is only worth casting at his feet or throwing in the fire. To worship God is to give him the reverence and adoration that his worthiness demands. If we understood God's value, you and I, and we all do it from time to time, sadly some of us most of the time, but if we understood God's value, we wouldn't have to work ourselves up in a worship service. We wouldn't have to worship, work ourselves up to be in His presence. No one has ever been ordered to stand before the Himalayas or to stand before the Grand Canyon and been ordered to, to, uh, take, you know, notice of them. When you stand before those things, those created things, what they are obligates your wonder and respect. Following me? No one has, no, no one, if I, if I paid your way to go to the Grand Canyon today, and we went together, you wouldn't stand there and say, yeah, it's a big hole, all right. I wonder what's for lunch. No one does that. Because the majesty of the thing demands awe. It demands respect. God is no different. And God is infinitely more so. Similarly, The word glory, glory is the quality in God whereby his worth is measured. And and it's what makes worship, this glory is what makes worship the natural response to knowing him or seeing him. In Romans, uh, the passage that Danae read, Paul uses three words to promote God's singular worthiness in his own saving work. And he says that from him and through him and to him are all things. He concludes that because of this, because of this from, through, and to, God is worthy of glory forever. In every facet of of God and his working that Scripture reveals to us, we see this trifold reality of from him, through him, and to him. Take his work of creation, for example. Paul's frame of reference is all things. 
He says, uh, uh, from him, through him, to him are all things. All things, meaning that nothing at all can exist outside of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Things tangible like trees and stars and animals to things intangible like truth and virtue. All of these things originate with God. And in this sense, all things are from God. As Paul clearly states, but he also says that all things are come through God. And what this means in, in the, in creation is that the, the, God is not only the architect who drew up the blueprints for the universe, but he's the construction worker who put it all together by his mighty word. He employed no angels. He didn't say angels go do this, you know, spiritual beings, cherubim, seraphim go do this. God did it himself with the speaking of his word. All things are not only from God, but they are through God. So creation issued forth from the might of God through his creative activity, but to what end? All of creation exists for the purpose of bringing glory and worship to God, of which he alone is worthy. In Revelation 5, one of the most incredible passages, one of the most incredible chapters you'll ever read, there's this, there, when we sang about this today too, it blew my mind. There's this, uh, this picture where, uh, there's a scroll in heaven and, and it, 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 a quick survey reveals that no one is worthy to open the scroll. And, and John, as he's writing this, begins to weep and, and, and an angel says to him, hey, guess what? The lamb, the lamb, he's worthy. He'll open the scroll. And he opens the scroll and all of a sudden this, this incredible praise service erupts to praise God. And it goes on and it just builds and builds and builds because the lamb has been worthy to open the scroll. Only Jesus was worthy. And so this praise service erupts. And, and I want you to see who it is participating at the apex of that worship service. Watch this. This is really cool. Revelation 5.13. And I heard Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory forever and might and might forever and ever and ever and ever. Do you see what happened there? The purpose of creation, of all of creation, has reached its apex where all of creation has turned in worship. Heavenly things, earthly things, ocean-bound things, all of it has turned in worship to give their praise to the Creator, to the Lamb who was worthy to open the scrolls. All creation is not only from and through God, but it is to God. He is the end to which creation exists. All creation exists to bring God glory. And while some now resist, even us sometimes, and some even refuse, I will never bow the knee. I promise you the day is coming soon when either willingly or unwillingly, their resistance is going to be shattered and every tongue will give glory to God. Now Paul's concern in Romans is not creation primarily, But it's the redemption of humanity by God. So how is the truth of the gospel shown as from God, through God, and to God? 
Well, the, the gospel is from God in at least a couple of ways. First, as we already indicated, he's the origin of everything. Everything starts with him. But we also see a unique aspect of this being from God in the garden. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to this little detail in, in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve fall and the, to the temptation of the serpent. But they fall, and, and when they fall, they, they, they deliver these judgments by God, curses literally, because of their sin that's entered their race. And, and, but what I want you to see, you do not see in that passage at all is Adam and Eve crying out for mercy. You ever notice that? It seems like if I were getting that judgment laid on me, and this may be a really high opinion of myself, but if I were getting that judgment laid on me that they did, my first impulse hopefully would be to say, Oh God, no. Lord, please. Please grant me mercy. Save me. Do something to turn this situation around. Help me. You know, I blew it. I'm sorry. Help me. That's not what we see Adam and Eve doing. What they are doing is they're, they're being resigned to their condemnation. Cursed and living in a fallen world. But what does happen is that God, in Genesis 3.15, promises a remedy is coming. A remedy that they did not cry out for. A remedy is coming to fix the broken world they've made for themselves. He initiated a rescue they did not request. The serpent's head would be crushed and his power would be broken because God is good and not because they were repentant. Y'all seeing that? It's from God. Salvation is from God. It starts with Him. It originates with Him. So that's cool that the remedy began in the garden, right? Oops, wait. It didn't begin in the garden. Because if you flip over to the book of Ephesians, you'll read these words. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4 is really important. Pay attention. Even as he chose us in him when, say it loud, before the foundation of the world. So before he said, let there be light, before he knelt down in the mud and created a man, before he extracted a rib wherewith to create a woman, God had chosen us in him before the very foundation of the world. Now who is the originator? Who is the origin? Who is the source of your salvation? Some sweaty Baptist preacher who, who twisted your arm till you came down and said a prayer? Uh-uh. It was God who chose you before the foundation of the earth. He's not done. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world so that we might be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us. Some people trip over that word. It's right there. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. Listen, let me tell you what all that just said. God chose us first before He created everything, anything. 
And he exercised his will. In other words, he had some want to behind this. He exercised his will in predestining that you and I would be part of his family forever. Adopted through Jesus Christ. And in multiple places, the Bible says salvation is of the Lord. Or salvation is from the Lord. It starts with God. But the gospel of our redemption uh, and salvation is not just from God, it's also through Him. Why do I say that? Because remember, it was God the Son who gave His life so that we might be saved. No one else could have done it. And I don't, and when I read my Bible, I don't see anyone else volunteering to do it. But Jesus, who is God, laid down His life so that you and I could be forgiven and reconciled to God. Salvation is through, is through God. It's through God. God. God not only planned it, but he, he executes it. It's through God because what the Father planned, the Son accomplished on the cross, and even more so, the Holy Spirit is applying to our lives daily, calling sinners to believe and to repent, and He's sanctifying those of us who have already believed. And Peter just triumphantly says all of that. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven to you for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Listen, you are saved because God originated and was the source of your salvation, but he didn't only originate it and plan it and source it, he accomplished it. That's the beauty of it. But the fact that salvation is from God's heart and through his working isn't even all. God has saved us to receive glory and praise for himself. The first three chapters of Ephesians, so I read them this week. It's just amazing how it illustrates this point really well. If you ask, what is the point of my salvation? You are going to not go to hell because you are a believer. But that's not the point. You're going to hopefully be a, a contributing member of society and be a more moral person. But that is not the point. The point is that God saved you so that he would receive glory. Let me take you through these, these passages. Ephesians 1.3 says that God's predestination of us was to the praise of his glorious grace. He goes on to say that God chose us so that we, so that he rather would receive praise for his great grace. Chapter, chapter one, verse 12 says that we've been given an inheritance by God. Why? For the praise of his glory. 114 says we've been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment on that inheritance. Why? Again, to the praise of his glory. Chapter two, verse seven says that we've been given grace. Listen to these words carefully. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God was so intent on receiving glory from saving you that he wants the saving of you and I to result in him being praised in the future. In the coming days. It's amazing, isn't it? 
3.10 says that God actually made Paul a minister of the gospel so that his manifold wisdom might be known, not just to humanity, but as a testimony to the principalities and powers in heavenly places as well. He wants all creation, earthly and heavenly, to see the glory of his grace that he's bestowed on us. Now, when we talk about God doing this for his own glory and for his own praise, you might think, well, has God some kind of narcissist? Of course not. Of course not. Here's the difference between my elevation of myself and God's. If I elevate myself in front of you, it's unhelpful and it's even deceitful. Why? Because I can never be the answer you need. Never. But if God does not promote his own glory, he's withholding from you what is most beneficial to you, which is what? Himself. So when God says, this is all about my glory, all he's doing is showing you his own awesomeness so that you can benefit from it. What he's doing. So 3.16 says that the riches of God's glory are the source for our our spiritual strength. And concluding all these thoughts, Paul says in 3.20 and 21, what God does for our benefit should ultimately bring him glory. So whether in creation or redemption or anything else, God chooses to do, let him receive glory alone. May we, you and I, cast all of our crowns at his feet and stand in awe-filled wonder and worship. And may his glory humble and strengthen us. May it break us and heal us. May it kill our pride and save our souls. May it cause us to reverently fear and triumphantly rejoice in his great power and name. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Now for some, especially if you grew up in church, the glory of God may seem like a given. No one came in here this morning thinking, well, I wonder if God's glorious. It may just be a given. But we should be cautious, lest in our self-centeredness, we fail to honor God as his word reveals him to be, dethroning him in our hearts by default. Daniel 4 gives a great example of this. It records the story of the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar. And he's standing on the roof of his palace. And he's admiring the vast wealth and the kingdom that that are formed around his leadership. And with pride, he says in his heart, he looks at it all and everything he has. And he says, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. Do you hear what that punk is saying? He's saying, where are we going to put all this greatness I have? Oh, I know, let's build Babylon. It'll be a great depository for all my awesomeness. But the Bible says that even as the words were in his mouth, a reply comes from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, To you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the heaven of men, and gives it to whom he will, and just as God decreed, Nebuchadnezzar goes completely crazy, living in the field, eating grass like an ox, his hair grows like eagle's feathers, his nails like bird's claws, his body is do. Uh, daily soaked by the rain and the dew. 
And when God's judgment is done, as mercifully it is, when it's done, God grants Nebuchadnezzar a moment of clarity, and he responds now in humility. And he says this awesome prayer, and it begins with these words. When he realized, when he came to his right mind, he said, I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. God restored him after proving who alone was worthy of glory. He blessed the Most High, not not the lesser high, but the Most High. And he honored him who lives forever, not the king who's coming and going, but he honored the one who lives forever. And here's the point. In closing, this is it. That's all I got to say. When we ascribe glory to earthly things, especially ourselves, we become earthy. When we say, this earthly thing, my wealth, my talent, my intellect, whatever, is, is glorious, then we become earthy. I read the passage in uh, Psalm 115 this morning to open the service where he says, those who who make idols become like them, foolish, unspeaking, unmoving. We become earthy. We become more animal-like. What do I mean by animal-like? I don't mean that we're out eating grass like Nebuchadnezzar. What I mean is we fight for control. If you want to know what I mean, grab a dog biscuit and throw it in, in between the two dogs that live in our house. They, they don't say, oh, after you, go right ahead. No, they're fighting for control of the dog biscuit. And that's what being earthly-minded makes us. We fight for control and we respond to every passion. I want that. Give it. That's how, that's how earthy-minded thinking makes us. But when we humble ourselves like Nebuchadnezzar and we're committed to the glory of the transcendent God, He raises us up with Him to heavenly places. He raises us up with him to heavenly places. And when he, and as he does so, he does so in all facets of our life. He does it when we're enthroned and when we're blessed. But he also does it when we're sick, when we're persecuted, when we're discouraged or in prison. And so for those who will lift their eyes instead of lowering them, you will find that God is, is with you wherever you are, no matter your circumstances. Coronavirus or not, God is right there with you when your focus is on Him. And this is what makes the soli and soli deo gloria so important. Most Christians, as I said, have the deo gloria part down. We're glad to give God all of the glory as long as we get some of the credit. But to give God alone the glory, to give God alone the glory is the pathway to joy, to blessing, to soundness of thought, to health in our emotions, to an intimate experience of God. And this, for all of us who were born in sin, is a fight. But it is a fight worth fighting. So who's ready to fight this morning? Anyone? Are you ready to fight for the glory of God? I want you to all stand up. I'm going to call our communion workers forward. And what we're going to do, we have many times explained to you many of the 
power and nuance of, of communion, and, and it's incredibly important. We know that the, the, the bread represents the, the broken body of our Lord. The, the cup represents the spilled blood and the cleansing blood of our Lord. And so, But what I want you to do today, since I'm, I'm fairly certain that most of you understand that at this point, I want to not only just ponder it, but I want to apply it. So I'm going to ask everyone in here to, to bow your heads. And I want to have a time, in your own words, I'm not going to say a word, I'm not going to lead you, I'm just going to give you the silence to be able to do this. I want you to, to take a quick catalog, and inventory of your heart, and look at the places where other things, earthy things, have been glorified, and not God. Wealth, status, politics, money, you know, stuff, approval, all of that stuff. Where are they? Just take a few minutes and just ponder that before the Lord. And then we are going to, um, we're going to pray together really briefly before we take communion. But just take a few minutes on your own, two minutes on your own to, to pray through this. God, we acknowledge that you are worthy of all of our worship. And that glory resides only with you. So God, we have repented now of our crowding of your throne, Lord God. Or of our dictating to you what to do and how to be, Lord God. And Lord, we we ask corporately and individually for your forgiveness that we might go out of here and be people truly who, who are committed to glorifying our Lord. So God, come quickly and heal us of our idolatries, our backslidings. And God, cause us to see you and to acknowledge your glory and to, and to glorify you, Lord God. To turn from all that we glory in and bestow all glory on you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, now we remind ourselves that when we re- uh, repent, we are forgiven. For your, your word says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we thank you, Lord, for the cleansing agent of your blood that we're about to celebrate, the healing agent of your broken body that we're about to celebrate. And we ask, Lord, that you would make us completely new this morning in the light of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we ask you to bless the body and blood of the Lord Jesus as represented by the bread and the cup. And God, we... Thank you for your sacrifice of your son. And Jesus, we thank you 
that you stood in our place and that our salvation is from you. It's through you. And God, now in our act of worship and taking communion, let it be to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may come. I need your strength in my weak heart The valley's deep and I can't see your face right now So I cry out loud Your ways are higher than my ways Your love shines hope into my dark day My hope Anchored in your name I've been set free by your amazing grace You're good, you're good, Lord You're never not good Your hand Commands the mouth of lions Your blood has set the captive free I look to you, my king, my rock and my redeemer You're all I need Your ways are higher than my ways your love shines hope into my darkest day. My hope is sacred in your name, Lord Jesus. I've been set free by your amazing grace. You're good, you're good, Lord. You never not. Your ways are higher than my ways. Shall hope into a darkest day. My hope is anchored in your name. I've been set free by your amazing grace. You're good, you're good, Lord. You're never not good. Place your hands in a receiving position. I'm going to read a benediction over you. 
This is everything we talked about this morning. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed. Hey, don't forget about family night tonight at five. Hope to see you.